0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Iron Bands of Bellaro It will probably come as no surprise that we here at the Word of the Week love word games. After all, each one of our episodes is basically just a running game of free association. Which is why one of our favorite pieces of poetry contains the following lines. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings. We also, as we have mentioned before, love running down a good gaming mystery. For previous examples, see our episodes about the Cloak of the Mountebank and the elemental deity Koseth. And when it comes to running down a good gaming mystery, there is no better source of mysteries than the names of various things in Dungeons & Dragons. Monsters, magical items, locations, and characters. See, for every bugbear and malabranchi that's a pretty direct reference to a piece of classical mythology, folklore, religion, or literature, there's at least two more nistles and blodgets that are references to such obscure things of personal interest to the authors of the game that no one in their right mind would ever know or recognize. And those actually far outnumber the Evards of the game that are just made-up gibberish words. Or so claim the game's many creators. So when friend and supporter of the show... uh, What? Nistel? Blodgett? You want to know what those are references to? Okay, let's start with Blodgett. To be fair, Blodgett doesn't appear to be a reference so much as a name stolen in desperation. Blodgett was a halfling thief who originally helped a party of heroes named... Elweta, Ogre, Freda, Caraway, Dread Delgath, Fanstern, and Elgeus defeat the Slave Lords of Flinaeus. See, once upon a time, there was this series of Dungeons & Dragons adventure modules called the A-Series. At the time when TSR published modules, they would use letters and numbers to divide them into different series. The A-Series, later called the Scourge of the Slave Lords, consisted of four modules, A1 through A4, in which the heroes confronted some coastal raiders, discovered they were raiding on behalf of a massive slave ring, tracked the slavers to their lair beneath a volcanic island, and eventually escaped the dungeons of the slave lords. But, before the modules were published and sold, they were created by TSR for use in a tournament at Gen Con 13 in 1980. And because they were tournament modules, they included a set of pre-generated characters that players would use to play through the module. The idea was basically that each group would take on the same modules with the same set of PCs, earn a score, and the party that scored the highest won. Which means, the designers of the modules, David Cook, Alan Hammock, Harold Johnson, Tom Moldovey, Lawrence Schick, and Edward Carmion, had to come up with a bunch of pre-generated characters. And name them all. And naming characters was always a pain in the butt. Remember that. It'll be important later. For example, we're pretty sure that the character LJS is actually just Lawrence Schick's initials. We can't say that categorically, though, because we can't find any reference to his middle name. And we looked. And as for Blodgett? In 1848, a Vermont tavern owner hired a local stove maker to build an oven for his tavern. The stove maker was Gardner S. Blodgett, and he gained such a reputation for quality that soon he was making ovens for everyone. Today, Blodgett Corporation, the same company founded by that stove maker in 1848, is one of the biggest manufacturers of commercial ovens. And if you spend any time behind the counter in a pizza parlor anywhere in the United States, you've probably seen the name Blodgett scrawled across a pizza oven. Now, we fully admit that this could be a weird coincidence. But young gamers and youngish game designers spend a lot of time around pizza. So we're willing to bet it's a lifted name. Especially because of how common that stuff is. As you'll soon see... Take our other example, Nistal. There are a bunch of magical spells in the D&D universe that are named after specific characters. Bigby's Crushing Hand, Melf's Acid Arrow, and Kanan's Lucubration. Which is not, as we often misread it to our own embarrassment when we were finally corrected, Mordenkainen's Lubrication. Just to name a few. And they are all named after various characters from the early days of the game. Mostly they are named after the characters people played in the earliest Dungeons & Dragons games. But Nistel's Magical Aura was once unique in that it was the only spell in the game named after a living human person and not a game character. It's just not the living person most people think. The spell Nistel's Magical Aura allows a spellcaster to imbue a mundane object with a magical aura. In essence, it makes a normal, boring, everyday thing appear to be an exciting, magical thing. It's a scam spell. A con. You can pass off a normal object as magical. The spell originally appeared in the 1978 Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Players Handbook. In 1995, A recently hired TSR employee named Mike Nistel claimed that the spell had, in fact, been named after him, and that he had the distinction of being the only real person for whom a spell had been named. This was in an article in Dragon Magazine, issue 219. Look it up. Mike claimed to have gotten started playing RPGs a decade prior, in 1985. Which means he had a spell named after him before he played the game? That seems kind of odd. Well, Gary Gygax actually cleared up the confusion in a forum post years later. It turns out the spell was named for one Brad Nistel, a stage magician, who had suggested the idea of the deceptive spell at Gen Con one year. Interestingly, though, a game designer named Len Lakovka said he ran a game for an entire clan of Nistel's one time, including Brad, Jenny, Mike, and Brian. And Mike and Brian, who both went on to be game designers at TSR and Fossa respectively, admit their father got them into role-playing games and had worked in theater, lending credence to the idea that Brad Nistel may have been their father and Gary's account might be accurate. However, Mike insists to this day that it's his name, not his father's, on the spell. And we'll probably never know the truth. But we digress. The point is that names in the Dungeons & Dragons universe are always great gaming fodder for a good complicated mystery. And as names like LJS suggest, they're also a great source of wordplay. So when friend and supporter of the show, The Warbo, suggested we explore the origins of the Iron Bands of Billerow, a very old enchanted item from the earliest days of Dungeons & Dragons, we couldn't resist. And when we finally did figure out the mystery, we had a hearty laugh, because of all the people who could have suggested this particular topic, it was most appropriate coming from the Warbow. But we'll come back to that. The Iron Bands of Billerow are... Or or the Iron Bands of Billerow is... or Well... Okay, so this is one of those tricky things, where the item is singular but contains a plural in the name, so the subject-verb agreement is a pain, and no matter how you try to say it, it doesn't sound natural, and however you write it, you know your editor and producer is going to have an aneurysm and change it. So we're going to do this in the most clumsy but grammatically accurate way we can think of. The magical object, known as the Iron Bands of Billero is, are a sphere of entwined metal ribbons that when thrown at a target and activated with an appropriate magic word, expand or expands and envelops the target, ultimately imprisoning him or her like a metal mummy. And if you're a fan of the Critical Role live play podcast, you might recognize that object as part of Vox Machina member Percival's arsenal. Percival, or more correctly, Lord Percival Frederickstein von Musel klosowski del Rollo III, lately of Whitestone. He also chose not to deal with the whole issue of singular proper noun phrases with plural words by giving his object known as the Iron Bands of Bilero a nickname. He calls it Manners. Now, the Iron Bands of Bilero are, or is, as we said, an old magic item. Older than you might think, but not as old as we hoped. There's no great mythic story we could find that inspired the object. It appears that it's a D&D original. And the object known as the Iron Bands of Biliru first appeared in the 1985 optional rules supplement Unearthed Arcana. Or at least they first appeared there under that name. But they first appeared in Dungeons and Dragons 11 years earlier. In 1974, Robert J. Kuntz, friend to Gary Gygax and one of the original gamers who tested the very first version of D&D, Robert J. Kuntz designed a section of the sprawling underground complex known as Castle Greyhawk. He named it the Orc Level. And while it has never been published, we can guess at its contents. And also reflect on just how much our favorite game designers really did struggle with names. Kuntz included a magical object that appeared to be a rusted sphere made of interlocking bands of iron that could be thrown at a target to magically hogtie them and it was called the Iron Bands of Binding. Eleven years later, when the object saw print, it was renamed to the Iron Bands of Bilirou, with one L. Why? Well, most such magical objects and spells were named in the fictional world of D&D after their creators. But that's in the fiction of the game world. In the real world, most of the proper names in D&D are references to characters played, by the original designers and testers of the game. For example, Dromage's Instant Summons was named after Jim Ward's character Dromage, And Odaluk's Resilient Sphere was named after Otis, Luke Gygax's player character in the Temple of Elemental Evil. See how this works? Well, Robert J. Kuntz played a character named Robilar for many years. And when TSR designers finally immortalized the magical object known as the Iron Bands of Bilirou, they wanted to recognize its original creator, Robert J. Kuntz, but their sense of fictional consistency created a problem. Robolar was a fighter. He didn't make magical items. So they shuffled the letters of Robolar around and got Biliro, which is why the original name only had one L. Now, these sorts of word games were actually very common. For example, you might notice that Oda Luke is pretty much just a mashup of Otis and Luke, because it recognized Luke's character, Otis. And Dramage is just a reverse of the letters in Jim Ward's name. Tensor was Ernie Gygax's character, or rather, Ernest Gygax. It's just a letter scramble. We could spend hours going through these sorts of word games in D&D, honestly. Even the demon B2, in the classic adventure Keep on the Borderlands, is just a slightly altered pronunciation of the module series code. It was module B2. But these sorts of word games are actually much older than D&D. In some cases, they are as old as written language. Take, for example, Odaluk. Otolook is an example of a portmanteau. That's a word made by combining the sounds of two or more words. Sometimes, as in Microsoft, it's two combined words, microcomputer and software, that create a new proper name. Sometimes, as in brunch, it's two combined words, breakfast and lunch, that create a new concept or word. And sometimes, as in Tofurki, it's two combined words, tofu and turkey that create something disgusting and ruin a wonderful holiday like Thanksgiving. Interestingly, though, portmanteau used to refer to luggage. It came from two French words, portaire and manteau, which come from the same roots as words like portable and mantle, because it means to carry a cloak or coat. But then, in 1871, Lewis Carroll decided that it needed a different meaning, which was part of the joke. See, in the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, which was called Through the Looking Glass, Alice encounters a poem that she can't understand the Jabberwock. It seems to contain a bunch of nonsense words, words like slithy and mimsy. The poem itself is comprehensible. It's the story of a hero who goes off to slay a terrible monster named the Jabberwock, and he lops off its head with a vorpal sword. But vexed by the poem, Alice asks the character Humpty Dumpty about it. And Humpty Dumpty has some peculiar ideas about how language works. While he doesn't quite speak gibberish, he does insist that words mean precisely what he says they mean, even if they very clearly don't. He explains that Slythy is a combination of slimy and lithe. And mimsy is miserable and flimsy. And thus, he says, they're like portmanteaus, two meanings packed into one word. What's the logic there? Well, a portmanteau was a specific type of suitcase made of two equally sized halves joined together and closed like a clamshell. Two halves made whole. And that word, the result of gibberish wordplay to make some clever point about pseudo-intellectual literary scholars inventing jargon to elevate themselves over the uneducated masses, came the term that linguistic scholars used to describe a word made by combining two others. It sort of proved Carol's point. But we digress. Word games. Portmanteaus aren't new. The word for them is recent, but new words have been appearing as a combination of old words forever, so Odaluc wasn't breaking any new wordplay ground. But neither were Dramage and Tensor and Robilar and Bilereau. They were all examples of a very old form of word game known as the anagram. An anagram is a word or phrase made by rearranging the letters of a different word or phrase, and to really be proper... Each letter should be used, and each should be used exactly once. And anagrams appear all throughout pop culture, not just in Dungeons & Dragons names. For example, most people will recall that Tom Marvolo Riddle revealed his anagrammatic pseudonym when he said, I am Lord Voldemort. And classic rock fans of a certain age will remember that Mr. Mojo Risen from the hit song, L.A. Woman by the Doors, was actually an anagram of the band's singer-songwriter's name, who we hope we don't have to name. It's Jim Morrison, Philistines. But anagrams go back a lot further than that, and they have been used by some very smart people to do more than simply hide clever self-references in pop culture works. For example, as far back as the 4th century BC, they were being used to flatter the wealthy and the powerful. Greek poet Lycophron was said to be a master of this. The idea was simple, you'd take someone's name and rearrange the letters to spell out a complimentary word or phrase. One of the best examples of this actually comes from a 1994 Simpsons episode called Lisa's Rival. The brainy know-it-all Lisa Simpson befriends a girl who she is vexed to discover is smarter than her and who comes from a very smart family. And one game that family plays regularly is an anagram game wherein they challenge each other to create anagrams for celebrities. Lisa's rival is challenged with Alec Guinness, a classy English actor, and she comes up with the anagram Genuine Class. Lisa, meanwhile, is stumped with Jeremy Irons, and can only say Jeremis Irony, rather than the slightly more esoteric Grim Enjoyers. This sort of game of rearranging names to find some complimentary descriptor evolved and took on a mystical aspect. By the Roman days, anagrams were believed to have prophetic or mystical significance. Jewish Kabbalists would seek hidden meanings inside people's names, believing them to be hidden messages from God. And Christian biblical scholars would use anagrams to hide hidden meanings in the text. One of the most famous examples of a biblical anagram, though it came out a bit later, involves the confrontation between Jesus Christ and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. As Pilate conducts Jesus' trial, Jesus claims to speak the truth. Pilate challenges him by suggesting there is no absolute truth. What is truth, he demands. Or in Latin, quid est veritas? Jesus, in the Bible, remains silent. But ancient scholars suggested the answer was an anagram of the question. Est verqui ad est? Which translates to... It is the man who stands before you. After the decline of Rome, anagrams fell out of favor for a long time. But then, language and clever wordplay weren't exactly popular in the Dark Ages, as civilization was recovering from basically collapsing. But they did enjoy a resurgence in popularity in the late Middle Ages, especially among scientists, scholars, and alchemists who wanted to hide their discoveries from prying eyes. Especially from the Christian Church. One of the more famous examples of such an anagram was when Galileo Galilei sent a string of letters that is too long to read and impossible to pronounce, but when unscrambled read, I have observed the most distant planets to have triple form. That was referring to his observations that other planets had objects like moons in orbit around them, implying that not everything in the universe was in direct orbit around the Earth. Later still, in the 19th century, the game of celebrity became all the rage, hearkening back to the poets of ancient Greece. Basically, this was the origin of the anagram game that Lisa Simpson just couldn't get the hang of. But anagrams aren't the only form of flatteringly worded poetry game to come to us from ancient Greece and gain popularity in the Middle Ages and beyond. Another example is the acrostic poem. Acrostic is a portmanteau of two Greek words that mean topmost verse. Essentially, an acrostic is a multi-line verse, where the first letter in each line spells out something. The oldest form, again, was spelling out someone's name, and that was an especially popular way to pay respect to a patron or a saint during the Middle Ages. To give an easy-to-find example, we'll go back to Lewis Carroll. The first letter of each line in the last chapter of Through the Looking Glass spells out the name of the real Alice. On which the fictional Alice was based. Alice, Pleasance, Little. In fact, the books were the result of stories that Lewis Carroll, whose real name was Charles Dodgson, which is not an anagram, told the 10-year-old Little during a boating and picnic trip. There are lots of other word games, too. But true masters of wordplay don't stop at one game. And that leads us to one of the oldest recorded and most famous of all word games in history, the Sator Square. The Sator Square combines elements of acrostics, anagrams, and a palindrome, a phrase that reads the same forward or backwards. It is a five-by-five grid of letters, five lines, each consisting of a single five-letter word. You can read it left to right and top to bottom. Or you can read it right to left and bottom to top. Originally, the Sator Square was thought to be an invention of clever Christian scholars created in the 4th century CE, but an example of it has now been found on the ruined walls of Pompeii, and it appears to have been inscribed in about 80 CE. It reads, if you're curious, Sator Arepo Tenet Opera Rotus. Translation The gardener Arepo holds and works the plow. The wordplay is admittedly more exciting than the actual translation. But go look at the thing. It's a pretty cool little bit of linguistic gymnastics. Kinda makes the robilar Billaro thing pale by comparison, doesn't it? Speaking of that, we should note that although Billaro was an anagram of Robilar, made to pay homage to the Magic Items author, Rob Kuntz, by remembering his original D&D character... Rob himself was so bad at naming his character that he couldn't even come up with a bit of clever wordplay. The name Robilar has nothing to do with his own name, Rob. In fact, after Kuntz created the character, he couldn't come up with a name. Eager to start the game, Gary Gygax reportedly dubbed him Robilar after a gnome in a short story Gygax was writing at the time. All of that said... We should also note that The Warbo, who originally suggested this topic, The Warbo's online handle is itself a result of accidental wordplay that directly involved the writer of this very script. See, Matt The Warbo is actually Matthew Arbo, and his online handle was just his first and last name with no spaces. And he's given us permission to tell this story, by the way. But due to a misreading of his name during an online charity livestream, we accidentally dubbed him Matt the Warbo. As if a warbo was a thing. And Matt was an example of one. And the name stuck. Because really, don't all gamers love clever word games? Even accidental ones? This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.